They see a body on the floor and come close and want to see what it is. And then it twitches and they shriek back. That's really satisfying if it works. <laughs> that was Malik Epice from an interview coming up later in the programme. This is Story Etc. I'm Tom Crowley. As we prepare to launch this episode, we're nearing the end of October, the sinister season. While in practice Halloween largely revolves around plastic jack-o'-lanterns and over-elaborate homemade costumes, there's also a more profound atmosphere of dread and horror which comes primarily through the stories we tell around a campfire, or read in an old dusty volume, or watch on our film and TV screens. Celebrating the international holiday of frights, this month on Story Etc we're talking about fear, where it comes from, how it can be recreated, and what different roles creative people have in the making of fearful things. I'm here with Jenny Redmond. Hello. And Eleanor Russian. Hello. I'm very easily frightened by fiction, generally. Historically, have been nightmarishly frightened by, oh, Woman in Black was a big one. Mm -hmm. The witches I was so frightened of. My oh, mum yeah. had to take the book away and put it spine inwards on a mystery shelf in the house. So I didn't know where it was. What else was on your mystery shelf? Well, nothing. It was like a mystery shelf, so I didn't know where it was. Yeah, how would she know? What else was <laughs> on the mystery, know, shelf? <laughs> was the mystery or shelf? Or is this a symbolic mystery shelf? I think the Woman of Black was probably there too. Yeah. The, the Witches was a big one for me. I remember oh as a, a kid just being... I pulled a sickie, I think, one week just to avoid the like reading group at school because we were reading that and I just found it too frightening. It's so frightening. Yeah. There's one part in it that... Do you remember the bit where he's in his treehouse? And then she's at the bottom with the snake. If I think about that for too long now, if I'm alone in any sort of garden, mm. it freaks me out and I have to leave. Uh, I have a very bad track, track record with being scared by things. I have a tendency to fall asleep when I'm scared, mm. <laughs> which is just the worst coping mechanism in life That's, for anything. Yeah. How have your ancestors... <laughs> How am I alive? <laughs> the <Redmans>. What? <laughs> Just napping casually. Whenever well, it, it's the best thing to do in the face of a bear. To be, to be fair, I don't like, know how the Redmonds encountered so many bears. <laughs> Just to, I think the best thing to do is to play dead, not actually fall asleep. <laughs> well, what's the best way of playing dead? It actually pass out. Um, key things that I was terrified about when I was a kid: I had a really bad reaction to scream. Oh, really? Like it, you know, it's not even meant to be that scary. And that, and there's a particular bit where the camera pans away to, I uh, can't remember, probably Drew, Mar Drew Barrymore's face and then pans back uh, to the window and he's all of a sudden there. And um, for ages I had to sleep with the light on. I couldn't look at windows if it was dark outside. Oh, for, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't like, look at windows that kind for a long of thing. time as well. Uh, books, less so, but then I don't tend to read books which are who, whose primary goal is to scare me. My one exception, I think, of that is um, American Psycho. Mm. I developed a really um, specific fear when I was reading that, which had nothing to do with anything that was going on in the book. And I had a very, very specific fear that I would be on a bus and the person behind me would just very, very, very casually lean forward and slit my throat. And that's nothing... That's a brilliantly inventive fear for you to give yourself. It isn't it, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. then I'd fall asleep and then I'd miss my stop. Yeah. And then... Pff, it's it's the it's the quintessential uh, text in that field is is Halloween uh, and it's the first appearance of that just sort of silent killer yeah just lurking in the shadows which is and it's brilliantly terrifying for that I think also the thing with American Psycho is it's so 
um, random. It's so random, little odd moments of, oh, I saw this guy, thought I'd kill him. Yeah, it's trying to put you in the mind of, of somebody who might do that sort of thing, which is frightening because then it sort of convinces you that those people exist yeah, and, will, around. and will kill you. Yeah. yeah, and how many people are just on the bus thinking, oh, I'll just... Might just kill that person. Yeah. One of the things I've seen for the first time recently that really scared me, um, one of the things that scared me the most out of any film or TV show I've ever seen, in fact, was Ghost Watch, the 1992 spoof Most Haunted program. Which, uh, are you two aware of Ghostwatch? Yeah. No. The listener might not be either, so I'll explain. It was a TV drama, very much billed as a TV drama, uh, but disguised enough as a real show that a lot of people, especially sort of kids of, I think, the generation just older than us, were absolutely terrified of it. So it's presented very much as a hokey, let's go into a haunted house with a UV light and see if we can find a ghost program. But of course, it being a drama, ghost stuff kicks off really badly. And it's, it's really frightening. But the brilliant thing about it is it's hosted by Michael Parkinson, who is acting, playing Michael Parkinson. Sarah Green is one of the presenters they send in. Uh, her real-life husband, whose name I can't remember, is also in the studio, uh, just like terrified for her as things get weirder. And uh, Craig Charles, as well, is one of their fun <laughs> roving reporters interviewing the locals. And it's just a wonderful haunted house story presented as though it was one of those very sort of cheap, naff 90s BBC kind of, well, we've got to put something in this slot programmes. And one of the brilliant things about it as well, which doesn't affect you now, but on release, they build a fake show that was going to start after an hour. And so in the show, they go, well, we're sorry if you've tuned in for, you know, the snooker or whatever. We've had to push it back because we're staying with events in the house. So people assumed it'd be over after the hour, thinking it was this reality show. And it was just a brilliant sort of hoax, like the War of the Worlds, Awesome Wells thing, but just in this very 90s British telly uh, clothes and, uh, and presentation. And it's it's genuinely terrifying. I think it's something about the fact that it's so recognisable, the format of it. And it's it's recognisable as something that's cosy and reassuring and a bit silly and lighthearted and fun. And it goes to such dark places. And I think there's, yeah, I mean, it's that classic thing of putting something unexpected and frightening in a, in a familiar, cosy space that really gets you. Yeah, I think playing with expectation is key if you're trying to elicit fear in any case, because... Yeah, even, especially when you're building something, someone up to expect a certain perhaps type of scary thing and then undercutting it with actually something entirely different. So to take, that's a really interesting example, and to take kind of an earlier one that does something similar, maybe, is something like Hound of the Baskervilles that kind of sets itself up as a sort of, oh, it's like a weird ghost story thing and then it becomes realer and more frightening and more supernatural seeming and then is undercut again with a an empirical actual baddie and I think that kind of stuff is so interesting and when it's done well it's so effective that can kind of just it it plays you it kind of it draws things out and then goes nope I'm going to change it I'm going to frighten you in a different way where better to start a fear themed episode than by introducing you to a vampire Robert Nairn is an actor and creature performer, seen recently in the television programmes Penny Dreadful and Red Dwarf, as well as the film Star Wars Rogue One. Eleanor Rushton spoke to him about finding the movement of a monster. My name is Robert Nairn. I'm an actor and creature performer. I'm currently performing in a show called Hammer House of Horror Live, The Soulless Ones. 
at Hoxton Hall, which is Hammer Horror, the kind of iconic horror film uh, label's new venture into immersive theatre. But I've played a myriad of monsters and creatures over the years. It's a funny niche to have found, and I completely fell into it, to be honest. I never planned it at all. What is it about you, you have, that makes you able to strike this kind of creature-ish note? Because I can testify to anyone listening you strike a very majestic figure <laughs> a handsome man oh, well thank you i don't know it's a question i've asked myself many times particularly when you're kind of buried in this uh you know foam rubber creature suit after a week of filming and it's kind of 6 p.m and you can't really breathe or see and you're you're thinking i do have a, a degree in biochemistry why <laughs> why am i what am i doing but even in those moments i i don't know i wouldn't change it for it for, for the world. I think kind of base level is I, I have quite an unusual physicality. So I'm very tall, but I have... Um, How tall are you? I'm six foot five. And I, I actually have a kind of, uh, it's in no way life-threatening, but a kind of connective tissue disorder called Marfan syndrome. Mm. The symptoms of which, actually really interestingly, a lot of creature performers have it. Mm. There's some ones, some creature performers who you may not know by name, but they're called Doug Jones and Javier Botet. And uh, they are two of the biggest kind of creature performers. So they've played um, the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth and um, the alien, I think, in Aliens and, and all sorts of iconic creatures. And they also have this syndrome. Mm -hmm. The symptoms of which are being very tall, very long limbs, kind of double jointed often or, or very hyperflexible. And uh, just an unusual all round physicality, which I think lends itself to a lot of these creatures I've been cast as because obviously the monster or the creature is often somewhat different to to the others in it. So someone who is much taller or bendier in some way. So I think that's kind of the first thing that has ended up with me doing these roles. Otherwise, I don't know, it's really interesting. Sometimes when I've been asked to do something for some of these jobs, I find it so much more freeing when I'm dressed up as a monster and covered in makeup. Or, or a suit or something, I find that so much more liberating. And other, other performers have said, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd be too kind of self-conscious or um, I, I just wouldn't know where to begin. But oddly, if you put me in front of a, like a, a camera for a photo shoot in my own clothes, I'm far more self-conscious than I am dressed as a monster where you can, there's just no rules. So that you're, you're very free. I find it very liberating. So I guess there's for some reason that kind of freedom, I just, I just kind of thrive on it. So I've, I've always enjoyed yeah, exploring these kind of odd creatures and characters and developing them. Hammer Horror is obviously a kind of iconic institution that lots of people, I think, even come to horror mm -hmm. through. And they sort of have that, lots of archetypes involved in them, you know, lots of, especially when you think of sort of like the vampire -y ones and mm -hmm. things like that. How has it been as a performer in that piece, kind of taking on that level of expectation and mm. history and then making this new immersive piece. It's been a really interesting process because Hammer is, as you say, it's, it's kind of cult, it's, it's iconic and there are a lot of fans who who know, I mean, and they, they have a huge backlog of films and there are a lot of fans who know all, all of them and all the words and all the kind of Easter eggs inside out. So it's, um, it, in a way, it's a really, it's a really, it's a real privilege to be invited into this world, particularly because this is a very different avenue for them to pursue. I think, I haven't looked into it actually, but I think they have done some theatre shows in the past. 
but this is very much the, the first kind of immersive show they've ever done. The idea is that the audience can roam around the entire building, Hoxton Hall, this beautiful old little Victorian music hall, which has been decorated all... There's kind of 10, 15 rooms that you can go and explore and you can go wherever you like. And it's, it's, it's immersive in the sense that you follow and you watch, but you don't interact. So it's kind of like a play where you can just go and watch whatever you like. And what's interesting is people people choose where they watch it from as well. So in the middle of a scene, they'll get up and come and stand next to you or cross the room so that they can get a different angle, which is what we're inviting them to do. It's like, choose your own ending, but you're in, you're in the book. Can you talk us through a little bit the different ways you might approach a character that is designed to create a spectacle or mm. a fearful spectacle often. Mm. I try and think about what they're adding to the story rather than just being something that like screams and pops up, which often is a huge part of the effect of the monster. It's there as a spectacle, like you say, and it's there to be something that looks alarming and alien, whether it's an alien or not, and, and, and not part of this world. But then I try and think a bit about like why why is it in it at all. So the first one I did was this TV show called Penny Dreadful, which was um, uh, a, a new TV show which took characters from Fra Frankenstein and Dracula and Dorian Gray and a load of others in Victorian London. They were all in together and kind of you know there was kind of demon possession and vampires and werewolves and all sorts. And I played the vampire in season one, which was my first kind of creature role. And they did a very different approach to the vampire off the back of a lot of other vampire things recently. So it was very, very monstrous. This one, it was bold, red eyes, fangs, it didn't speak. It just kind of snarled and screamed and was kind of super strong and really wiry and horrid and just stole people and jumped out of windows, basically. So it was, it was really, uh, it was quite a grotesque version of a vampire. Yeah, I'd never done anything like this at all. And I really, I tried to think a bit about kind of what was it adding to the story because you had all these really verbose characters who were very complex, who were, um, you know, had, had really rich kind of psychological lives. And then this creature, I think, was a, was a nice contrast to them. He was just physical. He was like a physical manifestation of, of, of people's worst fears, really. This horrible creature that was just kind of violent and thoughtless. That one, I just tried to, I guess I tried to make it just as physically kind of base as I could. So I, I didn't think about it too much, just let it kind of come out of my body a bit. But yeah, just tried to make him straightforward with his movement, animalistic, kind of very bestial and, and primal. So, so that was a very physical approach to him. I mean, the, the one in Hammer Horror is, is a human, but he's kind of lost his mind. He's a little like Gollum, not to compare him too much to a very iconic character, but he's he is a human who's lost his mind because he's lived for a long, long time with the vampires. He isn't a monster per se, he is a human, and he's supposed to be relatable to the audience. But he also had to find a way to represent someone who's been alive for many, many years longer than a normal human should be, and who has also been uh, abused by the vampires in ways I'm sure you can imagine for a long time, but is still plowing on with this hope of joining them basically. So that, that's that been a really interesting one to develop because again, there's a lot behind him mentally, um, but physically I, just, I really wanted to find a way to make him seem human still, but 
old and between these worlds he's trapped behind the veil with them so he's not really part of our world anymore but he's not part of theirs and that's that's his torment i i was i mean i was reading uh, uh, some things a little while ago about about horror and, and about the role of monsters in things and it's an interesting thing because nowadays they're so prevalent they're they're in everything you know from sci-fi to horror films to even even not horror kind of regular things there'll be you know some kind of mystical creature that pops up or something and uh it's, it's it fascinates me i think it always fascinates me why they're just always there and i think you know from from when we're children nursery rhymes and fairy stories obviously full of monsters and they're they're the first way i guess of kids learning about a very basic system of right and wrong so there's the good witch and the bad witch or you know the the, the hero and the and the monster so it's kind of a the, one of the first things you encounter and it and, and that really you know think things that are f fantastical like that really capture a child's mind because it's not part of this world it's not part of the world that they're learning about as a as a child and i think that doesn't really leave you it becomes just a bit more refined i guess as you grow up so you know a lot of the very classic monsters like for novel frankenstein the whole point of it is who is the monster mm. obviously so he's created this creature which isn't part of our world and shouldn't really be alive and yet that creature is actually quite sensitive and nice and gets pushed to become a monster or do monstrous things but actually then obviously the question is wasn't the first guy dr frankenstein the the real monster and then yeah so, so you get this spectrum of monsters obviously on one side and the kind of the exciting side of things you get real basic monsters who are just evil killing machines and that's kind of their sole purpose but i do i find it really interesting the ones i've played and the ones that i watch the ones who are kind of that in-between place of whether what it means to be a monster in terms of us in in our regular human lives i mean obviously you can look in the news and see monstrous things in every news article that you read mm. and and that, i guess that's why it interests us because it, it represents the limits of or not the limits i guess the, the real extents of what we are capable of and what people do and therefore how you how people respond to that and how you how you define that one of the things I like most about doing it as a job is the it really you really get to see the the extent of people's imaginations the artists who make who design these things obviously it's it's about me and the character I, I get to make but it's so collaborative and I found far more than my regular stuff as I call it the human stuff <laughs> in a way because if you're if you're bringing to life this amazing piece of makeup an artistry or a suit or some kind of prosthetic that someone's made there there have been you know someone has just drawn that someone has designed it someone has made it sculpted it painted it done all these incredible put it on you painted it on you all these incredible things and, and then, I suppose drawing from their own fears as well of yeah what they would find or they would find odd to look at if it's not a scary one exactly like, exactly really and cool. then they kind of shape that around you and then you know put, literally put it on you and then paint it on you and things like that and then but then when you're on set or, or performing it's all on you to then do that justice and that's the bit i find really exciting because so many people put their heart and soul into creating you know their job is to design and draw and create these incredible things and then you've got to try and uh, serve them and serve that and bring it to life in a way that looks realistic and not like 
a human running around with plastic on him. <laughs> You've got to try and find a way to make it breathe and live for them so that you bring their monster to life. Uh, so, so I play a few aliens in the, in the Star Wars films and that's been a lot of fun. It's been quite different to the other ones I've done because it's, they're, they're often more suits, like creature performer suits and masks that you put on so that they're usually quite big, chunky things. But there, obviously, because it's this massive franchise, uh, the, 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 the limit of the imagination and the design is just mind-blowing. Such These, a world. And I've seen stacks of concept art which don't even make it to the design stage. So, so these artists draw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of aliens, and then they make probably 2% of them. So I flip through some of these other drawings and oh, I want that one and that one and that one. But the ones, the ones they do make are obviously just astounding and, and, and they're all animatronic as well. So they have robotics in them. So you are in them with, with a face that moves an inch off your face and it moves independently with someone else controlling it. Oh. And again, when I was talking about collaboration, you have to move the body. And then I've done one where someone is controlling the face and then someone else is controlling his hands. So there's three of you operating this one creature and when you do it all in, and then someone else will do the voice after obviously if, if there's sound to it so there's kind of three or four of you bringing this one thing to life but when you when you do it well you know we, he moved and he picked up a glass and he looked around and all sorts of things so um yeah those those artists who work on those films are, are just astounding and obviously there, there will be many more of them to come i think <laughs> are there any monster performances or monster creations that I suppose the best way to put it is like that you hold especially dear, I guess, mm. kind of, or that you think, or that you think are especially frightening mm. as well. I love a lot. I really love Pan's Labyrinth, and I love a lot of Guillermo del Toro's films because the Pan's Labyrinth, especially, I just think is it's such a great example of fairy tale, of fantasy. And practically, he uses real, you know, there's not much CGI, if, if any, really, there's not much CGI in it at all. And obviously, for my, for the stuff I do with creature performing, when you get to do it for real, it's so exciting, rather than, you know, be, I mean, that obviously motion captures its whole, as a whole other thing. But to actually be wearing the suit on set, and then that's what you see in the film is very exciting. And that's what they do a lot of that. So the, the fawn is a, it's kind of the, the main creature in that, but the, the, the pale man, I think he's called, you know, the one with his oh, eyes on yeah, his hands. Yeah, yeah. He's just such an incredible invention. And it's so simple. It really is. You can just see him through that little girl's eyes in that moment. And there's nothing more horrifying. It does feel like something that. that someone who made the film has had a nightmare mm. about and remembered. Yeah. And yeah. made. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's perfect. I could, like I say, this other chap called Javier Botet, people should just Google him and look up some of his work. He is, he's, he's, he's got an incredible body. So this, this Marfan syndrome I mentioned, he's got it quite extremely. And so he can move his body in ways that I, that does look nightmarish to his compliment. But there's a, there's a film called Mama where he plays the, the kind of creepy mother lady who haunts the, the, the film and he can properly bend his arms back. I mean, that's just horrifying. That, that's truly nightmarish. Yeah, those are the ones that spring to mind. Um, well, I hope to find more soon. I hope to play a lot more. I think it's great. Hammer House of Horror Live, The Soulless Ones, is currently open for business and runs until the 31st of October at Hoxton Hall.
must be quite interesting to task yourself with writing something which is aiming to scare because like you can't tickle yourself I imagine not being able to scare yourself yeah. through what you're writing as well like how do you know it's interesting isn't it because well, I was thinking this because that's something I've always been like, as a writer been fascinated by was mm. the idea of writing something that's just horror because like there are horrific or frightening or tense moments and things I've written but I've never sat down to out and out write a frightening thing and when you think about it so few things that are so few things really manage to be genuinely terrifying at their very core like it can be a, a jumping moment or there can be a sudden twist that's frightening or you can you know depict a situation where the character might be frightened but coming up with something that's just in its own by its by its very setting by its context terrifying is I don't know if I have that in me you know I've never tried and I don't know how you'd start to approach it I think it must really draw on every other writing skill that you have pacing and structure has to be really really on point otherwise any kind of plot-based scare you're going to put in just isn't going to land at all. I just thought of the most recent absolutely terrifying thing. What's that? That's abs- I had nightmares for about two weeks. It was the Christmas special of Inside Number 9 last year. Oh, which one was that? It was the... Um, uh, the um, oh, oh, yes, it's The Devil of Christmas. Yes, The Devil of Christmas. That's ge- that is terrifying. The ending of that is really frightening. What? The Devil of Christmas. It was, had a, a monster name, though. It was like the... K- 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 oh, the Krampus. Krampus, thank yeah. you. And it was... I, it was I, and I, that was the one I'd been raving about in number nine for months. And I, it got to Christmas. And I said to my mum and dad, come on, let's watch the Christmas this, special. This fun You'll show. You'll like this. <laughs> it's really clever. It's really smart. And then that happened at the end. My dad just went... Well, that's very different. <laughs> oh, God. Um, it's frightening, was, though, that episode. It's really frightening. Utterly terrifying. Because it's that sudden pullback reveal. Of, it's, yeah, yeah, and it's the stomach drop, and it's the it's the roller coaster thing of, of, of spending half an hour being slowly winched up. Yeah, and, and then, then suddenly dropped. Yeah. Suddenly dropped, and not just dropped, and then, and then something else happens. Dropped and then just left. I wonder if in terms of the kind of act of writing something frightening... And it being really successful, really landing and something that stays with people. It's a combination, I think, maybe, see if I can make a formula, no, of coming up with something that is new and that strikes an image that is somehow, you know, lands lands in the mind and, and stands out. But also of tapping into deep-seated fears that are already there. I think... You can't just introduce something and say, be scared of this. It has to play on something. And whether that's kind of the human fear of something unknown, whether which I think is where all supernatural things kind of why they work, whether it's to do with maybe someone you think is nice, not being nice and changing, which I think is where things like mm. werewolves, why werewolves were scary yeah. and why the witches is so scary because it's people who look like they're kind and who are actually going to kill you. Mm. The witch is like a proto they live in many ways, oh, now that I think about God, it. God, it's awful. Mm, yeah. It's so frightening. But I think it's, I think it's something like that. And I think when you can hit upon a combination of those two things, that's when you have something that is going to haunt your nightmares forever. We're now delighted to present a reading of a poem by Molly Beth Morosa. A chilling tale entitled Coppice, the Living Puppet Girl. I once knew a girl, quite sad of face, because, you see, she lacked the grace that fine young ladies do possess, along with beauty and finesse. 
with button eyes and ribbon hair, and wooden body light and fair. They say she was fairer than a pearl, dear Coppice, the living puppet girl. Her puppeteer would work right through the day to make her perform in his favourite play, then throw her aside like a used cotton ball. A life not your own, well, that's no life at all. She felt strung up, amongst other things, to spend her days attached to strings. Her feet were always off the ground, and she so hated hanging around. She wished to take on human form, seeing as it was the norm, and longed to have a smooth, soft face, and just to move and dance with grace. What's missing? she thought. Just where do I start? Oh yes, of course. What I need is a heart. She pondered hard. Do you suppose my puppeteer has one of those? He was the only human that she knew, so she grabbed her string and scissors too. She'd take his heart. It might even be fun. And plus, she thought, he owes me one. She snuck up slow to where he worked, and in the darkness there she lurked, looking for the perfect spot to execute her transplant plot. The scissors plunged down right into his chest. The live, beating heart was being repossessed. She battled through cartilage, muscle and bone. Soon, she thought, this guy will need a headstone. After a while, the blood started to drain. I could do with a clamp for the pulmonary vein. The heart was cut free. The corpse sat there and bled. Cardiologically speaking, the man was quite dead. She opened her door, then she placed it inside. Then she hoped, and she wished, and she prayed, and she tried. Then she had a sensation. She hadn't before. It changed her a bit. Then it changed her some more. Her heart rate rose, and then it dropped, until finally her heart just stopped. Her warm, soft skin turned cold and rough. The human heart was just not enough. I once knew a girl quite sad of face, that memory proves hard to trace. She now resides in history, where she remains, ghost of mystery, with button eyes and ribbon hair. She's faded now and not quite there. She once was fairer than a pearl, dear Coppice, the hollow puppet girl. Coppice, The Living Puppet Girl was written and performed by Molly Beth Morosa and recorded by Tom Crowley. Why do you think we're so obsessed with specifically supernatural bits of scary things? I think on it's because on some level most people think they might be true. That's not to say most people believe them, but 
they're things we don't understand that we're sort of geared into maybe thinking about from when we're very little. It's like there's room for so many possibilities. Yeah, and I think um, playing with kind of the supernatural and our sort of buying into them in stories is our way of kind of negotiating those possibilities. And I think people with very set ideas about, so people who do believe in ghosts or do believe in something like that, are probably going to be scared by quite different things. They've got a delineated idea of what they think is is the case. And so things like suggestion about other kinds of ghosts are probably going to be less effective. Whereas someone who is more sceptical or less sure, I think can still be sort of rendered childlike and confused and, and sort of creeped out, for want of a better, a better phrase, by those sorts of things. Supernatural themes in... Um, horror and fear writing in books and films have have come in waves. And I think at the moment we've we've got a bit of a a crossing of having a lot of supernatural-based stuff. We're getting a lot of retellings of ghost stories and reimaginings and that kind of stuff. But we're also seeing um, more use of uh, more apocalypse-based fear, more um, end-of-the-world, shit's gone bad, like things that could conceivably happen at some point pending a rage virus they I was not- I was just thinking about zombies because they are very much a supernatural horror theme but they're always tethered to science mm. even though basically what it is is hey what if magic happened and dead people came to life and wanted to eat you and the, every, the only yeah. sort of reason it's science based is because they'll say it's a satellite returning from Venus or it's, you know, a virus or something. And you don't really see that with other things. Like, you don't see... Like, dragons well, aren't a scientific... Oh, hey, we saw this crocodile once and now we've got dragons. Like, Well, think about Doctor Who, for example. They always... That, that is a show that takes place in a, re, a scientific world. Mm-hmm. Like, its, it's rules are driven by science. So even, you know, they'll have the actual devil turn up, you know, down a big hole. And they'll still have to say, well, it's just a being, which is kind of indistinguishable from what appears to be the devil. But who knows? Is that the image that's been percolated through the universe as the devil? Or, you know, and it always leaves you that there's never anything that's just supernatural and left. And there's some brilliant episodes where they take something like like Hyde, the Haunted House episode, where it seems like a straight down the line ghost story, but it becomes about parallel dimensions and all this. And there's something quite nice about that. But you sort of realize ultimately it's just excusing a supernatural horror. Yeah. Finding a way around it. It's a mm. Scooby Doo thing. It's the yeah. It was the old caretaker. Yeah, yeah. Satan was the old caretaker. Yeah, Satan was the old caretaker. <laughs> or a being indistinguishable from the old caretaker. Yeah. By delving into the history of horror, we get a picture of what sorts of things have most consistently put shivers up our collective spines over the years. One of the longest-standing forms of horror storytelling is the Gothic novel. To take a closer look at the genre, Jenny Redmond met up with Tanya Kirk, a curator at the British Library and aficionado of the Gothic. So my name is Tanya Kirk and I'm lead curator for Printed Heritage Collections 1601 to 1900 at the British Library, which is a very long job title. <laughs> um, yeah, essentially rare books and printed ephemera um, dating 1601 to 1900. And I, uh, in 2014, I was one of the co-curators of the Terror and Wonder exhibition, which was a commemoration of 250 years of Gothic literature. What kind of things did you discover with that exhibition, or curating that particular um, so we tried. We we covered the whole two hundred and fifty years. So we started off with the Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole, which was the first Gothic novel. 
Uh, and he sorry what classifies as a first gothic novel how does that become the first one that's a really hard question (laughs) Uh, we I got asked what makes a gothic novel a lot while we had the exhibition and it's so hard and we ended up with a kind of um a checklist of ideas that things that will include yeah I mean people often use different motifs in a gothic novel um and there's things like a, a a found manuscript or some kind of um secret from the past that's coming out but I mean I think essentially it's um it's literature that kind of focuses on there being something beyond and something that is scary that's beyond and I think that is a kind of more or less a constant and you get different levels of it so you get kind of horror fiction which is very explicit and you get um the more kind of terror based which is more kind of um fear within the mind rather than explicit things going on uh, but they all kind of stem from this beginning at the castle of Otranto. so we we explored the whole 250 years in one room which was made it really hard to select things and um it kind of goes down a fairly straight route for quite a lot of that period. So um, the French Revolution had a really big impact on literature and made it get a lot more um, kind of bloodthirsty. Um, and then you get in the Victorian period, you get the kind of growth of sensation fiction where it's kind of very melodramatic and you get people like Wilkie Collins um, and Edgar Allan Poe and people like that. But then when you get to the 20th century, it, became really hard to tell people what gothic was because it was just going in all directions and there's so many kind of sub genres of gothic in that time and there's the growth of film which we tried to cover a bit but obviously we can't that would be another whole exhibition if you just did a something about gothic film so it just became massively challenging and we ended up with these kind of threads um for the 20th century that people could follow and one of them was a ghost story um and that was kind of how I got interested in ghost stories I think uh the kind of interest in in monsters and zombies and body horror that comes out through Clive Barker's work like uh Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart which was his kind of earlier version of it um yeah, I just I think of that as being quite a twentieth century thing, and as we kind of knew more about the body, but I suppose it kind of it goes back to Frankenstein, which is the first kind of monstery text that I think of as being really gothic. Mm. Did you come across anything while putting this exhibition together that you didn't expect? Yes, there was a lot. I think that I didn't expect. Um, there's the section that I really enjoyed um, putting together was about a uh, kind of folk horror, um, which again is quite a 20th century thing that draws on earlier periods. So things like the Wicker Man yeah. um, and the works of people like Algernon Blackwood, who wrote The Willows, and that kind of look at the, the horror that's inherent within the natural world. Um, and I was really determined to get in a kind of a, a surprise comedy element into the exhibition. So we borrowed a, a, 
a puppet of the were-rabbit from Wallace and Gromit in The Curse of the Were-Rabbit <laughs> and put it in a big case in the middle of all these kind of horrific monsters. <laughs> because actually... It seems funny, but that film has so many kind of plays on different gothic films and novels in it. It's so, it's so clever. Like what? There's a, there's a bit that's like um, Teenage Werewolf, the, the kind of transformation scene where Wallace turns into the were-rabbit. It, <laughs> you can kind of like link it to all these other films and there's exact kind of screen setups that match. <laughs> We had this brilliant print in the exhibition that was um, an image of a, a woman reading The Monk by Matthew Lewis, a kind of um, seminal, inspired by the French Revolution, um, quite horrific Gothic text. And it's basically of her standing in front of a fireplace, masturbating whilst reading it. And this is like an 18th, late 18th century print. And it was trying to show that this was kind of having this terrible impact on women and uh, <laughs> like making them somehow ruined uh, by <laughs> reading this <laughs> this gothic literature I wouldn't have expected that no it was really very unexpected <laughs> people were going around the exhibition and getting to it and kind of looking at it and then doing a massive double take as they realised what was going on I'm thinking this did used to happen in the olden days <laughs> Or was that put there as a reason like we should be banning Gothic literature because this is what happens? Or... It was a kind of a satire on that this is what people yeah. were saying about women that read Gothic literature. So did the Haunted Library immediately follow on from your um, from the Gothic exhibition? Uh, yes, yeah, so I started working on it not that long after and um, it was originally, I was going to do a kind of a, a partly 19th century, partly early 20th century collection uh, and they were all going to be stories focused around books and libraries. And um, when I started work on it, I realised that more or less no one was writing ghost stories about books and libraries before M.R. James. There's, there's one earlier story I found, which was by Edith Wharton, that kind of has a library as an important setting. But apart from that, he established that whole genre. But then after him, there's loads of people Um and the, he kind of starts this tradition of um, essentially librarians writing ghost stories. So there's a few other librarians um, and kind of manuscript experts like him. And then uh, I felt like I didn't want it to be a very masculine book because people think of the world of M.R. James as being very male dominated and there aren't many women in the stories at all. And uh, I actually managed to find as many stories by women that focused on books and libraries, but they do kind of quite different things. So whereas M.R. James is more about the kind of scholarship and the curiosity taking you into dangerous waters. And then uh, some of the women writers like Mae Sinclair and Elizabeth Bowen, they look at this kind of psychological impact of books that's quite um, interesting. Yeah. It? I think the scariest story in the book is uh, one by Margaret Irwin, which is called Just the Book, uh, which I hadn't heard of before. It was written in 1930. And it's um, basically a kind of demonic Latin book that uh, possesses this family man and starts trying to get him to kill his family. It's really scary. <laughs> Sounds it. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I taught. I had to write an introduction for it, and um, I ended up writing about what it's like when you have to go down to the the library storage area after all the kind of retrievals are finished for the day, and the staff that work down there have gone. If you go, if you go down there, sort of evening time, because you're working late, and it's just so silent and strange, and you can just feel these kind of oppressive rows of books and um yeah I mean I find it quite a atmospheric experience it must have been quite I mean for example Emma James and everybody who followed him there has to be everybody finding that sort of same kind of atmospheric yeah that leading them to write about it I mean I was worried that I I essentially I'd uh, edited a book where the target audience was me because <laughs> or other librarians um which would be niche but, <laughs> Quite niche. Yeah. but um I think that turned out not to be true luckily um because enough people have kind of felt that about books that they got it and yeah you don't have to have worked on your own in a library to understand It was interesting what you were saying about waves as well, because I was thinking about another kind of horror that I personally really enjoy, which is kind of religious horror of kind of, yeah. you know, the devil having been born in a child or something like that. And those have slightly gone out of fashion, I think. And I suppose because that sort of satanic panic and that fear of Ouija boards and things isn't isn't so current. It's really satanic Panic is a really good name for a band. It is. I was thinking about Satanic Panic. It may even be the name of a band. Do you think that's more because we we don't really fictionalise religion in the same way we do uh, we used to because it's it's less cool. Religion is, you know, looking at segregations of faiths isn't really something that we're doing at the moment because it doesn't seem to be particularly progressive. We also have a less spiritually uh, homogenous world. Mm. So people, you know, you might say Satan and enough people are going to say, well, either I'm, I don't put any stock in religion or mm. I believe a completely different thing. You know, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have the same power as the sort of the previously perceived Judeo-Christian sort of norm, which I think helps. And I also think it's because a lot fewer people put stock in religion or yeah. certainly the sort of uh, people who are making the films. One thing I found very interesting, I was researching a play a few years ago, which was a modern retelling of Dracula with the sort of, I'm thinking about what would happen if Dracula and and that kind of stuff was real, but it was in this world where people understood and had phones and didn't believe in that kind of thing. And I was, my, my sort of view is, I would assume that if I was suddenly if I was Lucy and started to transform I would assume I was going mad and I kind of thought that's what everyone would think and it wasn't that people I asked one person I remember if I I asked her if if you suddenly started having these things and you thought that it was to do with possession and that kind of thing what what would you think she'd be like well I'd assume I was being possessed and I'd assume that evil things were happening Mm. because she had so much confidence in her own sort of um a mental state yeah that she's like well no i no, I'd assume it was that. And then I asked someone else and they were saying, well, I would assume it was something devilish or something like that. And kind of would, and, and it took very little to kind of prick this fear of, well, no, those things like something satanic or something 
devilish really could like this is a thing I, I believe fundamentally could happen and it was fascinating people's re- relationships with how dark things could yeah, inhabit the them yeah. I have two interesting perspectives on this because my girlfriend is the biggest skeptic in the world and is you know, all about science and reason uh, to an almost religious extent one might say uh, but not to her because that would and make she, her angry she, yeah, but, she <laughs> no she wouldn't but it is but it's, it's the same kind of conviction that you have that there is no other side and there is nothing beyond what we perceive and can test and prove uh, currently and uh, I'm more wishy-washy on that you know if someone swore blind to me they saw a ghost I actually would probably believe them on some level but uh, also so my dad um, is a priest and so well more accurately a vicar and he has always hated Halloween because in his mind, in the sort of church calendar, I, I had a conversation with him yesterday, in fact, about this. And he was saying, well, if you don't believe anything at all, then it's just a bit of fun, isn't it? But if you have any religious conviction, then what it is, is it's celebrating evil and it's uh, ev- evoking evil spirits. And that's completely wrong. And I just found it quite fascinating. And I find it especially fascinating now that Halloween is mainly just people dressing up as characters from films they like and going to each other's houses. Uh, but still, yeah, he still has that sort of that primal religious uh, terror of evil. In this episode, we're delighted that we managed to secure interviews with two incredible creature performers and now present the second, Malik Epice. A regular on the London cabaret circuit and an experienced physical performer in film and television, Malik has most recently been seen in Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams on Channel 4 playing a creaky old robot. I spoke to Malik about the collaborative nature of creature work and the techniques and limits involved in scaring people on a face-to-face basis. My name is Malik Epias. I'm an actor. I'm a mime and a creature performer. My, I think the the, the way I got into 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 well into mime first was. Um, my parents made the mistake of taking me to a very early Cirque du Soleil show when I was like eight or something like that. Yeah, it must have been like eight, eight, eight or nine. And um, I think that sort of was the moment that they lost me to the breadless job that I'm doing now. <laughs> and yeah, and so I think then it just sort of went through high school drama groups and, you know, the sort of the usual stuff. And then um, afterwards I was like, oh, maybe I should be an actor and what else is there? And... Um, and then I found that you can actually learn mime, like physical theatre and all these even weirder things than being an actor. You can be a mime, a clown. Um, and so I, I went to Berlin. Um, I'm German. <laughs> um, I went to Berlin and did two years at a school there uh, called Dietage. And they had like an acrobatics department, dancers, actors, m- mimes. And so I did two years of mime there. And then I went to London and did three more years here in a school uh, called International School of Corporeal Mime. Um, that's sort of a very specialized technique. Um, and all the way through that, I was very much aware of um, Doc Jones who is an utterly amazing creature performer. And, well, he doesn't want to be called a creature performer. He is an actor, and that is true. We are actors, um, uh, just in a very specialised field, if you like. Um, so, and, and and I was sort of aware of him through uh, Pan's Labyrinth first, and then, you know, um, sort of IMDb-ing him. Like, I, I noticed that he was there all through my childhood as well. He was in... in um, 
Batman Returns. He was in the Hush episode of Buffy. Um, so, and, and there was like a whole new field of work that I wasn't really aware of that could be explored for someone who's more of a physical performer. Okay, so um, scaring people. Interesting. Okay, I think that they're, they're, like, like with, with, with the movies, there are different ways of scaring someone well it's a very sort of the, the term seems almost too limiting but um you know sort of disturbing someone um um so yes there is the moment of you know someone walks down in a hallway and something jumps out at them um and and yeah the jump scare is great and it's very satisfying if you get it right um you know if they see a body on the floor and come close and want to see what it is and then it twitches and they shriek back that's really satisfying if it works <laughs> but i feel like being able to play off of someone who enjoys it more than shrieks back from it is more satisfying recently i did a double r club uh, show um sort of lynchy and cabaret um, that happens at Bethnal Green's Working Men's Club. And one of the characters I do there is called Red Hand. And he's like this sort of white-faced guy. And he's got like a red hand over his mouth. And um, got red eyes. And it was interesting. Sort of the, the end of it, I was walking, like I was sort of creeping through the audience. Um, which is sort of how the acts usually end with him. And I was, and people shriek back and they're scared. And they're weirded out by the this weird guy and there was one guy who stood right in front of me and wouldn't go away but the energy he sort of gave me if you know it's a very esoteric way of putting it but just sort of he was just there to enjoy and so I stood with him and and we had this moment together where we could like sort of enjoy the strangeness of it and that was great that was really really good obviously I try not to make someone like to 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 shatter someone's personality but also usually if someone is happy to go to a place where you can expect something like that. I wouldn't necessarily stop myself from scaring someone, but I would definitely stop myself from like, you know, I, ideally I don't have to be physical as in like touch someone to scare them. Yeah, so sometimes I, I um, sit in my room being bored, having nothing to do. And so I start doodling about or more likely um, just start, pulling random stuff out of my storage and 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 see how I can recombine things. So ultimately I end up with a weird creature or character, usually creatures and more, more, more often monsters these days. Creating those is interesting because um, I usually don't know where I end up. I have a vague idea what I want to do. And obviously material, the, the nature of the material limits you to a certain shape. But I, I can just start and see where it flows and what works and what doesn't and what I have to do in order to make it work. And and usually I do it without a time limit. So I work on it when I feel inspired and when I don't, then I leave it in the corner until it until I have, I have another idea or I have, until until I have enough time. The performance sort of comes out of the the way the character is built. So. Um, with my limited means, I build characters in a way that isn't necessarily always the most practical, but I'm very happy to step into them and move with whatever limitations I've actually given myself. Um, and and usually it works, I hope. So far, people have rarely complained. Um, <clears throat> um, so, and, and, and that, opposing that is if I am working with a professional makeup effects artist or um, a creature a creator um, 
uh, who who has been given a brief by production um, as to what to create. Um, so then I have to I have to see what what they have created. Sometimes um, they would they will do a head cast or a full body cast. So it will be literally um, made to the shape that is my body. Which is beyond my own capabilities, so it's it's more going to be more precise than what I could do, um, but also because I haven't spent um, potentially months creating it, um, I have to learn really fast how to work with the limitations that the suit will give you. Having said that, most of the time those people are so good that there are not that many limitations. So I played, um, well, I was inside the suit of uh, uh, the robot RB29 in Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, which is uh, currently out on Channel 4. And I'm in the episode The Impossible Planet. Sorry, no. Impossible Planet. Not The Impossible Planet. Impossible <laughs> Planet. It, this was unique in a really beautiful way um, because they knew that they had to create this very ambitious multi-layered piece suit um they gave us uh, about three weeks rehearsal time and when i say us um i'm i'm i have to say this is an amazingly collaborative character so um uh there was there was uh the the guy who created the suit with his company christian mallet of kmfx um there was the movement director ita o'brien with whom i've worked with before um and she she worked on humans um, um another tv show and um she's absolutely fantastic and um obviously there's chris Daines who uh, provided the voice for rb29 so um creating the the character and the suit was interesting because again they had a full body cast and they did that weeks before we even started uh, rehearsing in order to create the a prototype suit on me so i had something to um, to walk around in and to see what the limitations were and and um, because the character the robot of the character of the robot was that um, he was already several hundred hundred years old um, so he would be clunky and 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 had glitches in his software and um, obviously his hardware wouldn't function properly anymore so we had to find a way to make the movement glitchy and then to do that within the suit, which was sort of like an outer body armor. So they built the suit, um, built a helmet mask thing, and then I had an undersuit under that, uh, which was a suit tailored to my body. Again, I used my body cast, which was great. Um, and then also the guys on set put lights into the suit. So basically everything but the glowing eyes were practical effects. Then once we had the suit proper, we started rehearsing um, in the suit with the movement that we came up with, seeing how we could translate it well enough because there wasn't much movement of it of the character. Um, in fact, uh, something that Ita said to me, was, which was great, if you have a robot, you have to treat it like like you would treat an iPhone. Everything has to be calculated so that you lose as little charge as possible because every movement requires energy and therefore every movement that is um, too much is unnecessary. So everything was in the head. Every little line that you had to say would 
just require a head movement or a slight tilt in weight. Um, so it was all minimal and precise, which is sort of opposed to like most of the creatures I've done. So that was the rehearsal phase, and that was great. And Chris Daines would join us towards the end and would start finding the voice for the robot. And then we would start rehearsing together to see that we could match his voice with the movement and vice versa. I definitely say I was still acting um, inside the suit, even though the movement was so minimal. I think because of that, I actually felt more like I was acting because we had to be so precise in, in putting him together so the, 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 the voice would be believable with the way he moved. Um, and it was definitely... I mean, yes, we rehearsed the, the movements and what we would be doing because also I had very limited vision. But in my mind, once, once we were actually on set with actors around me doing the other characters, this was a performance. This wasn't a choreography that I had to, to sort of run down. Um, and and because Chris would also modify what he the way he would say it, um, say a line, I tried to modify with my movements. And most of the time, because we again we had the time to rehearse together, we could sort of feel each other what we were doing, um, and he could see me as well. So he was on set with us, and I felt for most of the time it was magical because. I was doing something and he improvised around that or again, vice versa. I, I would notice he would do something with his voice and would try to match that in the movement. Ultimately, I was in the very, very fortunate position to be a character, um, even though while my, my voice wasn't, 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 um, wasn't doing it, I felt like it was my voice because he was, Chris was so good. Um, and so, yes, it was, a, it was definitely a, a performance uh, like uh, and I was definitely acting in the suit yes Malik can be seen regularly at the Double R Club at Bethnal Green Working Men's Club and at the next edition of Crowley & Co's variety show The Night on Monday the 6th of November at Brasserie Zadell We now present an original story etc recording of a classic horror tale a chilling early 20th century short story entitled The Whisperers by Algernon Blackwood. To be too impressionable is as much a source of weakness as to be hypersensitive. So many messages come flooding in upon one another that confusion is the result. The mind chokes, imagination grows congested. Jones as an imaginative writing man, was well aware of this, yet could not always prevent it. For if he dulled his mind to one impression, he ran the risk of blunting it to all. To guard his main idea and picket its safe conduct through the seethe of additions that instantly flocked to join it was a psychological puzzle that sometimes overtaxed his powers of critical selection. He prepared for it, however, an editor would ask him for a story, about 5,000 words, you know, and Jones would answer, I'll send it to you with pleasure when it comes. He knew his difficulty too well to promise more. Ideas were never lacking, but their length of treatment belonged to machinery he could not coerce. They were alive. They refused to come to heel to suit mere editors. 
Midway in a tale that started crystal clear and definite in its original germ would pour a flood of new impressions that either smothered the first conception or developed it beyond recognition. Often a short story exfoliated in this bursting way beyond his power to stop it. He began one, never knowing where it would lead him. It was ever an adventure. Like Jack the Giant Killer's beanstalk, it grew secretly in the night, fed by everything he read, saw, felt, or heard. Jones was too impressionable. He received too many impressions, and too easily. For this reason, when working at a definite, short idea, he preferred an empty room without pictures, furniture, books, or anything suggestive, and with a skylight that shut out scenery, just ink, blank paper, and the clear picture in his mind. His own interior, unstimulated by the geezers of external life, he made some pretense of regulating, though even under these favorable conditions the matter was not too easy, so prolifically does a sensitive mind engender. His experience in the empty room of the carpenter's house was a curious case in point, in the little Jura village where his cousin lived to educate his children. We're all in pension above the post office here, the cousin wrote, but just now the house is full and besides is rather noisy. I've taken an attic room for you at the carpenter's near the forest. Some things of mine have been stored there all the winter, but I moved the cases out this morning. There's a bed, writing table, wash handstand, sofa, and a skylight window, otherwise empty, as I know you prefer it. You can have your meals with us, etc. And this just suited Jones, who had six weeks' work on hand for which he needed empty solitude. His idea was slight and very tender. Accretions would easily smother clear presentment. Its treatment must be delicate, simple, unconfused. The room really was an attic, but large, wide, high. He heard the wind rush past the skylight when he went to bed. When the cupboard was open, he heard the wind there too, washing the outer walls and tiles. From his pillow, he saw a patch of stars peep down upon him. Jones knew the mountains and the woods were close, but he could not see them. Better still, he could not smell them and he went to bed, dead tired, full of his theme for work next morning. He saw it to the end. He could almost have promised five thousand words. With the dawn, he would be up and at it, for he usually woke very early, his mind surcharged, as though subconsciousness had matured the material in sleep. Cold bath, a cup of tea, and then his writing table. And the quicker he could reach the writing table, the richer was the content of imaginative thought. What had puzzled him the night before was invariably cleared up in the morning. Only illness could interfere with the process and routine of it. But this time it was otherwise. He woke and instantly realized with a shock of surprise and disappointment that his mind was groping. It was groping for his little lost idea. There was nothing physically wrong with him. He felt rested, fresh, clear-headed. But his brain was searching, searching, 
moreover, in a crowd, trying to seize hold of the train it had relinquished several hours ago. It caught at an invasive, empty shell. The idea had utterly changed, or rather it seemed smothered by a host of new impressions that came pouring in upon it. There was nothing physically wrong with him. He felt rested, fresh, clear-headed, but his brain was searching, searching, moreover, in a crowd, trying to seize hold of the train it had relinquished several hours ago. It caught at an invasive, empty shell. The idea had utterly changed, or rather, it seemed smothered by a host of new impressions that came pouring in upon it. New modes of treatment, points of view, in fact, development. In the light of these extensions and novel aspects, his original idea had altered beyond recognition. The germ had marvelously exfoliated so that a whole volume could alone express it. An army of fresh suggestions clamored for expression. His subconsciousness had grown thick with life. It surged, active, crowded, tumultuous. And the darkness puzzled him. He remembered the absence of accustomed windows, but it was only when the candlelight brought close the face of his watch, with two o'clock upon it, that he heard the sound of confused whispering in the corners of the room, and realized with a little twinge of fear that those who whispered had just been standing beside his very bed. The room was full. Though the candlelight proclaimed it empty, bare walls, bare floor, five pieces of unimaginative furniture, and fifty stars peeping through the skylight. It was undeniably thronged with living people whose minds had called him out of heavy sleep. The whispers, of course, died off into the wind that swept the roof and skylight, but the whisperers remained. They had been trying to get at him, waking suddenly. He had caught them in the very act and all had brought new interpretations with them. His thought had fundamentally altered. The original idea was snowed under. New images brimmed his mind, and his brain was working as it worked under the high pressure of creative moments. Jones sat up, trembling a little, and stared about him into the empty room that yet was densely packed with these invisible whisperers. And he realized this astonishing thing, that he was the object of their deliberate assault, and that scores of other minds, deep, powerful, very active minds, were thundering and beating upon the doors of his imagination. The onset of them was terrific and bewildering, the attack of aggressive ideas obliterating his original story beneath a flood of new suggestions. Inspiration had become suddenly torrential, yet so vast as to be unwieldy, incoherent, useless. It was like the tempest of images that fever brings. His first conception seemed no longer delicate, but petty. It had turned unreal and tiny, compared with this enormous choice of treatment, extension, development, that now overwhelmed his throbbing brain. Fear caught vividly at him, 
as he searched the empty attic room in vain for explanation. There was absolutely nothing to produce this tempest of new impressions. People seemed talking to him altogether, jumbled somewhat but insistently. It was obsession rather than inspiration, and so bitingly dreadful, real. Who are you all? His mind whispered to blank walls and vacant corners. Back from the shouting floor and ceiling came the chorus of images that stormed and clamored for expression. Jones lay still and listened. He let them come. There was nothing else to do. He lay fearful, negative, receptive. It was all too big for him to manage, set to some scale of high achievement that submerged his own small powers. It came, too, in a series of impressions, all separate, yet all somehow interwoven. In vain he tried to sort them out and sift them, as well sort out waves upon an agitated sea. They were too self-assertive for direction or control. Like wild animals, hungry, thirsty, ravening, they rushed from every side and fastened on his mind. Yet he perceived them in a certain sequence. For first, the unfurnished attic chamber was full of human passion, of love and hate, revenge and wicked cunning, of jealousy, courage, cowardice, of every vital human emotion ever longed for, enjoyed, or frustrated, all clamoring for expression. Flaming across and through these, incongruously threaded in and out, ran next a yearning softness of incredible beauty that sighed in the empty spaces of his heart, pleading for impossible fulfillment. And, after these, carrying both one and other upon their surface, huge questions flashed and dived and thundered in a patterned wild entanglement, calling to be unraveled and made straight. Moreover, with every set came a new suggested treatment of the little clear idea he had taken to bed with him five hours before. Jones adopted each in turn. Imagination writhed and twisted beneath the stress of all these potential modes of expression he must choose between. His small idea exfoliated into many volumes, work enough to fill a dozen lives. It was most gorgeously exhilarating though so hopelessly unmanageable. He felt like many minds in one. Then came another chain of impressions, violent yet steady owing to their depth. The voices, questions, pleadings turned to pictures, and he saw, struggling through the deeps of him, enormous quantities of people passing along like rivers, massed, herded, swayed here and there by some outstanding figure of command who directed them like flowing water. They shrieked and fought and battled and sank out of sight, huddled and destroyed in blood. And their places were taken instantly by white crowds with shining eyes and yearning in their faces, who climbed precipitous heights towards some radiance that kept ever out of sight, like sunrise behind mountains that clouds then swallow. The pelt and thunder of images was destructive in its torrent. His little first idea was drowned and wrecked. Jones sat back exhausted, utterly dismayed. He gave up all attempt to make selection. The driving storm swept through him, on and on, now waxing, now waning, but never growing less, and apparently endless as the sky. 
It rushed in circles like the turning of a giant wheel. All the activities that human minds have ever battled with since thought began came booming, crashing, straining for expression against the imaginative stuff whereof his mind was built. The walls began to yield and settle. It was like the chaos that madness brings. He did not struggle against it. He let it come, lying open and receptive, pliant and plastic to every detail of the vast invasion. And the only time he attempted a complete obedience, reaching out for the pencil and notebook that lay beside his bed, he desisted instantly again, sinking back upon his pillows with a kind of frightened laughter. For the tempest seemed then to knock him down and bruise his very brain. Inextricable confusion caught him. He might as well have tried to make notes of the entire Alexandrian library in half an hour. Then, most singular of all, as he felt the sleep of exhaustion fall upon his tired nerves, he heard that deep prodigious sound. All that had proceeded, it gathered marvelously in, mothering it with a sweetness that seemed to his imagination like some harmonious geometrical scheme, including all the activities men's minds have ever known. Faintly, he realized it only, discerned from infinitely far away, into the streams of apparent contradiction that warred so strenuously about him, it seemed to bring some hint of unifying, harmonious explanation. And here and there, as sleep buried him, he imagined that chords lay threaded along strings of cadences, breaking sometimes even into melody, music that rose everywhere from life and wove thought into a homogeneous whole. Sleep well? his cousin inquired when he appeared very late next day for dejeuner. Think you'll be able to work in that room all right? I slept. Yes, thanks, said Jones. No doubt I shall work there right enough when I'm rested. By the by, he asked presently, what has the attic been used for lately? What's been in it, I mean? Books. Only books, was the reply. I've stored my library there for months, without a chance of using it. I move about so much, you see. Five hundred books were taken out just before you came. I often think, he added lightly, that when books are unopened like that for long, the minds that wrote them must get restless and... What sort of books were they? Jones interrupted. Fiction, poetry, philosophy, history, religion, music. I've got two hundred books on music alone. The Whisperers was written by Algernon Blackwood and performed by Omar L. Okta. It was recorded and directed by Eleanor Rushton. We've covered frightening films, television, literature and theatre so far, so what's next? In the podcast audio drama Explosion of the Past Decade or so, countless writers and performers have been playing with and reinventing classic ideas of horror and comedy. In the case of our next guest, both. James Carney is the creator of the comedy horror podcast The Unseen Hour. I met up with him to discuss his influences, 
his process in creating each episode, and how he blends humour and nightmares. Hello, I'm James Carney. Uh, I write, direct, uh, produce, and uh, created The Unseen Hour, um, which is a live show and uh, podcast, uh, a horror comedy audio drama, which we perform uh, every month at the Rosemary Branch Theatre, and it's uh, broadcast fortnightly as a podcast. When I started it, I was listening to a bunch of podcasts, so I was um, I mainly Welcome to Night Vale and The Thrilling Adventure Hour, I think, were, were two of my main influences. And then I started thinking, well, if I was going to make a podcast, what kind of thing would it be? And the other big influence is The Goon Show. Um, so it's sort of that that combination of sources, so that the horror comedy thing from, from Night Vale, the sort of uh, the modern live show from Thrilling Adventure Hour and the sort of classic absurdity character doubling and and sort of yeah the nonsense of the goon show all kind of coming together um and and sort of trying to put a, a to some degree uh an original spin on it um yeah that was that was sort of what led to doing the show well, i suppose um the horror elements often tend to be more sort of structural it's it's a, a comedy set in a horror genre so the the comedy sort of comes later. The the general kind of the premise for the episode is a horror premise, um, which is often a, a parody of you know um, yeah maybe nineteen eighty four or uh, of um, what was it Day of the Triffids or uh, what were the other ones we did two thousand and one I guess. Um, so there'll be a sort of horror premise, which then is is where well, I try and parody it and, and sort of, uh, yeah, add some some humour to it on top. Um, and I, a lot of the comedy of it comes from just taking all of the air out of the, the horror premise. So because the, the scripts that I write are only about 15 pages long, um, at most they're sort of, they run 20 minutes. So, um, and then we put the, the sort of interludes in, there's a musical interlude and a, and a um, monologue interlude um, in each one. Um, but the scripts that I write are so condensed that if you try and put a three act structure into a, into 15 minutes, then it's automatically a bit funny. The horror tends to be in the premise and then the comedy sort of comes after. But then if you want to get kind of some really good horror moments, then you have to pay a bit more attention to that side, which I think started to come in a bit later after we'd, we'd done a few episodes. So about episode seven, um, I think, which is the victims of the Quelmouth curse is the name of the episode is where I started to like, like really concentrate on trying to get the horror, horror stuff in there. I think certainly it has become more sort of topical as I've gone on. In fact, Quelmouth curse, uh, was, was based on, oh, it was an attempt to parody, uh, MR James stories with that sort of couched narrative, uh, layer upon layer of storytelling but then the one that came after that was a, a sort of nuclear apocalypse um, very specifically focusing on North Korea and America um, having a fight over Twitter um, and that was quite a challenge that was, I think that was the most sort of topical one I'd done to that point and then and then I tried to do something uh, about the uh, the Charlottesville 
situation and, and white supremacists and stuff, which was even more challenging. Um, but I think, yeah, the idea of making them very sort of current and, and, and kind of, uh, that sort of, what is it? Six days to air, um, idea taking something that is currently in the news or you think might be about to come up in the news and making an episode about that. I think that probably came from the fact that we were releasing every two weeks. So there's a very quick turnaround on our show, which means I can write them and have them listen to. Um, yeah. And so in, in the same way as, as happens with South Park, for instance, um, you can make them about something that's very current. I mean, actually my process has, has stayed relatively the same as I've gone from those early episodes up until now, at least. Um, I mean, right at the beginning, I had to sort of come up with the cast of characters right from the beginning and then just uh, stick with them ever since. Um, uh, but so you, my, my process tends to be writing what's going to happen in one in act one, in act two, and then in act three, essentially a sentence each. Um, well, in fact, maybe there's a stage before that where I say, well, the episode is about this. And then act one, act two, act three, and then break it down into, into sort of beats. So you have a, a an essential, essentially a treatment, um, which marks about what happens throughout the whole episode and then straight onto script. Um, and that has stayed the same, um, from the beginning. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how much else has changed. I think, I think I've got more used to it. So it, it's, I feel like I almost skipped over the treatment stage, uh, last time around, but in the end I just did it. It, it makes it easier to do that, so let's stop with it. Uh, so we have Vesta. Um, that's the uh, the Dark Hearth, the Stephen King parody. Um, so, yeah, Act 1, Stride Forth moves into a new home with Perch and Featherstone. Um, each of them encounters different a different ghost. Or Stride Forth in, encounters ghosts, the others start behaving strangely. So that's slightly different from how it ended up in the end, but... The sort of the concept was there. They they move into a new house. There are ghosts. Um, two, Strideforth attempts to stand up for himself and stake his claim on his new home. Three, Strideforth loses confidence entirely and tries to run away. The house comes to life and traps him. He murders his family and stays forever. Um, <laughs> so uh, one way that I structured the whole the whole series is is to use a lot of stuff to do with archetypes from uh, uh, from Campbell and and various other sort of people who write about writing and you know i think I've, I've at least changed the names of some of their archetypes if not um slightly adapted them so i had the idea of a, a herald com uh, character which isn't one that i tend to sort of use very much um but a herald count character announcing the haunting threshold guardians allies and then the outlaw trickster character i actually in this episode those those didn't end up being a part of it because it, it sort of it became quite a, a formulaic episode where all of the characters apart from Strideforth, Perch and Featherstone and Grick, um, everyone else was ghosts, just sort of random ghosts who happened to be in the house. So then, yeah, from that three-stage um, uh, kind of structure, it moves on to this, which is uh, like two pages. <laughs> Lay out the page as um, uh, the title of the episode and then one and a half pages taken up with the the treatment and then at the bottom of the other side it's it's always the ooey oo there's an uh, a running joke um where there's always an acronym in the in the world of the episode and the acronym is always o o e e o o o ooey oo 
and no one ever just says the acronym. They always say the full thing. I just sort of started that joke in the first episode and then repeated it in the second episode and then and that was a running gag and I had to do it every time. Um, the the Vesta episode was quite good because I just uh, it just was a series of strange noises. So it was uh, was definitely referencing the Babadook. But yeah, so we had Uli Uli Eki Eki Ok Ok Ok. But yeah, so I, I often sort of end up brainstorming as many words as I can think of that are vaguely relevant that begin with either O or E. Um, <laughs> um, so in, in every episode of The Unseen Hour, we have um, um, two interludes. Uh, the first one is a monologue, which is written by um, a guest writer and performed by a guest actor. The second one is a musical interlude, which is uh, a band. I, I mean, I've, I, a couple of times I've, I've just kind of written to them over Twitter and just said, I'm doing this show, would you like to write a monologue for it? And the brief that I give them tends to be um, that it should be about five minutes or 1,000 words long. If they're a dramatic writer anyway, if they, if they write scripts um, in their sort of, you know, normal writing life, then I probably won't say this, but um, if they're a novelist or a poet or something, then I would tend to say it's good to have a sense of the speaker's identity. Um, because that's not always the case when you're writing prose um, or poetry, I suppose. Um, but if you're if you're used to writing screenplays or radio drama or something like that, then you you tend to know that automatically. And then the other thing is that it should there is an inspiration word for each episode, um, which is you know for that episode I was just talking about. It's uh, Vesta. The first one was Sol, then Mercury, then. Venus, then Earth, then Luna, Mars, Deimos, Phobos, Vesta, Iris, Metis, Hebe. There's always a, a word that sort of is the inspiration word for the episode, or a root word for the episode, which is the name of a celestial body, as it happens. Um, but they are, these celestial bodies are named after mythological figures, often gods of something. Um, so Hebe is the goddess of youth. Um, so that episode that I wrote was about the Fountain of Youth and the monologue that I got, I was looking for a, an older writer, an older performer because um, working with the pool of, of uh, kind of contacts that I have, it tends to be quite a young crowd, at least sort of, you know, mid thirties uh, seems to be about the, the top of the range. Um, so I was looking for someone like a little, a little above that um, at the very least. So that monologue ended up being about, um, Okay, Alzheimer's essentially um, yeah so it was about the loss of youth or about about aging um, so having that little connection to to this root word sort of slightly unifies the episode and sometimes it's very literal like uh, very soon the Juno episode is coming out and that is actually I think that's the first one that's actually tied to mythology in that it is uh, Jupiter being um, psychoanalyzed I think yeah, often the writers will say to me, um, does it need to be funny? Or, oh, I don't think I'm very good at comedy or something like that. Or, or I don't I don't know if I can do horror. And I, I yeah, I would just say to them, like, you, you don't have to. It, it can be comic. It can be horrific, but it doesn't have to be. Um, the whole point of the monologues is to provide a sort of a counterpoint for the episode. Often they're much more composed and serious and and sort of... I guess naturalistic in a, in a way um, 
because the episodes themselves are very kind of absurd and silly. Um, and then when you get a really sort of a really dark monologue or a really um, sort of intense emotional one, it's a it's a real kind of it's a real break from what we've been doing in the rest of the episode. And it, I think it it's it was an experiment at first, but it it seems to have worked very well. It's interesting. I, I feel like there are sort of there's potential to go in various different directions. Certainly, oh, I'm not sure how much I should say because I, I feel like there should be an air of mystery about it. But um, certainly, I'd like to develop ideas of continuity from one episode to the next. So that currently it's an anthology show. So yeah, every episode sort of starts anew, which is great. It means that. Uh, it's accessible to new listeners every episode. But I feel like it would be nice to have a bit more continuity, um, a sense of a larger universe. Um, and I have ideas for that. I just haven't put them into practice yet. You can find The Unseen Hour on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice completely free. We heartily recommend giving it a try. If you like things that are creepy or things that are funny, it manages both with terrifying skill. So looking forward to the next few years of horror, books, films, TV shows, what do you think is going to really prey on those fears in the near future? Other than US politics. US politics, North Korean politics, British politics, um, our relationship with Europe. I mean, these are all things that are terrifying. But yeah. I'd be interested to see if we could turn the kind of trade disputes that we're currently having with the EU into a genuinely terrifying horror film. I think we're going to see a rise in maybe some sort of Maybe not horror, but kind of fear-based things to do with. Oh God, I don't even like saying them, but like new, like new weapons and new and oh, spy, and spying relationships and kind of those sorts of frightening. Mm. We haven't had a, a spy wave. For yes, a we while. had the Tinker Tailor film, but that was only a sort of blip, really. Yeah. There's the one. There's one also that's recently come out about Cold War again. Mm. Um, the name of which I can't remember, but which has um, old Spider-Man in it. Toby Old Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire. There you go. <laughs> but I think that's going to be what is going to come out. In the What's going to be frightening? I'd say that. I think also, though, as, as time goes on, we're building up uh, more of a back catalogue of, of self-referential mm. um, scary things or things that are just using tropes and myths that we, we've already been scared by once. Um, like, look at um, Cabin in the Woods, for example. Yes. Um, and, and similar. So you're using just already created nuggets of fear and just lumping them all in together and going hey you think you're scared of werewolves what if i tell you that the werewolf is like the least scary thing in this warehouse full of scary things yeah yeah well it's interesting as well because i was thinking about it being sort of one of the bigger horror hits of of recent uh, years and it's it seemed a strange thing to do but when you think about it we have this sort of 80s nostalgia now which Mm. is i think it's partly just because people who are making films grew up with those films and suddenly they become the reference points you know from when you were a kid but it's also, I think, because we are yearning on some strange level for this pre-internet halcyon era of, you know, having to phone your friend if you want to see them and um, riding around on bikes all afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. The, the 80s nostalgia thing. But Stranger I think things, Stranger Things. Yeah, quite. Yeah, absolutely. Of, of what, glory days of, of not being distracted by bigger things or just taking it back to the same kind of fear we felt with the witches of just being scared by your immediate surroundings and being scared by... Uh, impact of things on your your personal situation mm. rather than this globalization of of 
bigger things, bigger fish to scare. I think that's partly about uh, our everyone's individual childhood and nostalgia mm. for that childhood. But I think it's also because the world is, is safer. You know, I mean, while some children in Korea and America are shouting at each other a lot, we're broadly safer. We have phones mm-hmm. on us constantly. We have constant access to friends, emergency services, information. You know, it's 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 harder and harder to be disconnected from. Well, it's it's harder, harder to be caught by surprise. So I think possibly that idea of going back to a time when you know, in Stranger Things, if the kid's not at home, how are you going to find him? You got to go and see where he is. And I think that it makes things logistically more complex and difficult for the character but it also it, may, it it pushes you further apart from the people around you in a way and that isolation aspect of being scared as well like how can you be scared if you're in a big crowd you need to be on your own yeah absolutely and so we're, we're more crowded in by technology which also makes us uh, it's, it has its own frightening things about it but it, it's it harder for us to be sort of alone in the dark with just a single candle reading M.R. James and drinking a cocoa While we might now be harder to frighten and more jaded by images of fear and violence, you only need to take a brief look at book sales, charts and box office receipts to prove that humanity does still love being scared. Whether the prevailing wind of popular taste blows closer to more realistic, down-to-earth horrors or further flights of fancy, we at least know there will be plenty of it. After all, we absolutely love scaring the heck out of each other. Thanks so much for listening to our show this month. If you'd like to know more about any features you've heard, you can find full episode notes on our website, storyetcetrapod.com. If you're enjoying Story Etc. and you'd like to help us out, the best things you can do are tell a friend about us or give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to give us some feedback or just have a chat, you can find us on Twitter at Story Etc. Pod, or you can email us at storyetcetrapod at gmail.com. And please do get in touch, especially if you're a writer who has a script you think we might like to record for the show, or an actor who might like to perform in one. We want to hear your stories too. That's all from us this month. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode. Power. Story Etc. Episode 8, Fear, was produced and presented by Tom Crowley, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill marson who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Robert Nairn, Tanya Kirk, Malik Epice, and James Carney. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening. Listener.